0: Welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy.
1: So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to introduce Cecil Castellucci, and she's going to come here and uh, kind of host the evening. Cecil Castellucci is the author of the amazingly titled Boy Proof, and a bunch of other great books and novels and children's books. And she's definitely the queen of cool. Please welcome Cecil.
2: I'm small. Hi, um, welcome to uh, The Lit Thing, Book Bash, where authors rant or rave about a book that they love or hate. Um, I'm super excited. We're doing this bi-monthly, it's still sort of an experiment, but I'm super, super excited tonight to have Amy Spaulding, Amy Goldman-Coss, Mark Haskell-Smith, and Justine Musk. So um, so please uh, enjoy the evening, I will start it off with a little rant or rave, you decide. Um, okay. So, uh, like many people in this room, I didn't like going to school. Uh, I barely studied, but I maintained a solid B average except for in math where I was a disaster. And mostly I was bored out of my mind all the time in high school. And this is the way I dressed in high school, just FYI, I always wore a snood. Um, So you would think that because I'm kind of artsy that I would have liked and excelled in English class, but I didn't. And I was not invited to be in the special creative writing class that my school offered for the talented and gifted storytellers. Uh, And everyone that did, I don't think any of them actually grew up to become an author, so I feel it's a little bit of a win, but you know, whatever. Nor did I make it into AP English because I was considered average all around. But senior year, something happened to me that pissed me off and made me flip out. And so I marched into the English department and demanded to speak to the head of the English department, Mrs. Pollard. And she met with me. And she said, Cecil, I hear your concerns, but there's nothing that we can do about it. My hands are tied. And I said, look, Mrs. Pollard, you have got to find me a different English class. So we looked at my schedule, and we looked at the senior... English teacher schedule and nothing fit. Every teacher was either teaching at the wrong time or it would interfere with the classes that I needed to take in order to graduate because it was senior year and there was no wiggle room except for one class, Mrs. Pollard's. Well, I can take your class, I said. She said, yeah, that's an AP class, Cecil. Meaning what, I thought, right? Like, I'm too stupid to take your fucking class. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, that was what the answer was. But uh, she said, it's an AP class. And I said, well, Mrs. Pollard, it's the only class that can fit into my schedule. Well, you won't be up to speed, Cecil. You won't be able to handle the course load. It's a very demanding class. We read a lot of books. (laughs) Okay, well, if I don't take your class, then I don't graduate from high school. So she was quiet, and then she was irritated, and then she looked defeated, and she said, fine, but you have to meet me here twice a week at lunchtime for extra tutoring. (laughs) Fine, I said. (laughs) And then she handed me a copy of the first book the class had been reading, because it was already a couple of weeks into senior year, and uh, it was James Joyce's A Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. (laughs) Read it, she said. The exam is on Friday. Okay, I said. So now I was a voracious reader. Uh, something that my former English teachers had not fully appreciated. They just thought that I was lazy I just liked reading different books than the ones that they designed decide you know had decided on and I read a lot of books But I'd never read Joyce. He was never on my radar I don't even think I'd ever heard of him which when you're 16 years old is not quite surprising because you know There are a lot of books that you've never heard of um, At the times I was obsessed with Henry James Because I had heard someone say that sophisticated ladies would go to cocktail parties and be able to talk about Henry James and I was a sophisticated lady and I felt that I was gonna grow up to be a sophisticated lady and so I read a lot of Henry James so that I could eventually dazzle everyone at cocktail parties (laughs) I don't think I could do it now but when I was 16 we were golden Uh, so I took the slim volume home and the copy that I received had this like yellow cover I don't know you know if anybody had that copy of it, but it was a yellow cover with like a picture of, you know, him on the cover, and um, I started it and I finished it, and the book totally fucking blew my mind. I didn't even know that a book could be written like that. Hey, Steve, can you get me my um my iPhone from upstairs because I forgot there's something in there. Um. I didn't even know that a book could be written like that. That it could be strange, that it could be wondrous, impressionistic, fragmented, true yet fiction, sentences that made no sense at all and yet perfect sense at the same time. It was like James Joyce his writing was made exactly for me and exactly for my heart. And I loved the way that as an author, he could write something and tell the story of an artist in an absurd way that was the truth. That it was more true than any truth that ever had been told as a truth. And as Stephen Dedalus's artistic consciousness emerged, I felt my own consciousness awakening. I, myself, was becoming an artist. I was in love with these words. I was in love with James Joyce and how he made me feel. I have not read this book in uh, 20 years, but I can still remember that moment where Stephen Dedalus sees the girl by the, um, by the water and a piece of seaweed attaches to her leg. So I'm going to read that to you now. A girl stood before him in midstream, alone and still, gazing out to sea. She seemed like one whom magic had changed into the likeness of a strange and beautiful seabird. Her long, slender, bare legs were delicate as a crane's and pure, save where an emerald trail of seaweed had fashioned itself as a sign upon the flesh. Her thighs, fuller and soft-hued as ivory, were bared almost to the hips, where the white fringes of her drawers were like feathering of soft white down. Her slate-blue skirts were kilted boldly about her waist and dovetailed behind her. Her bosom was as a bird's soft and slight, slight and soft as the breast of some dark plumaged dove, but her long fair hair was girlish and girlish and touched with the wonder of mortal beauty, her face. I was hooked. (laughs) This guy was for me. And I think that at that moment in the book, which is one that I actually allude to in my novel Beige, where I say something like, let us go to the sea and maybe we will see a girl with some seaweed on her leg. (laughs) you can find it in there. (laughs) It's a delightful surprise that nobody knows what it's alluding to, but now you do. Um, So but anyway, I think that that moment in the book um, is the moment, it's like one of the moments where I knew that I wanted to be a writer, and that that's what I wanted to be, and that if a book could be written like this, that this was the profession for me. I can't say that that's how I write at all, (laughs) but I think that there's a certain leanness in a portrait of an artist as a young man that makes up sort of the bones or skeletons of how I like to write that fragments and leanness, the economy, and sort of dreaminess of words, um, which is what I like to write. So I will say that I got an A on that exam that Friday and that after a while Mrs. Pollard didn't have to tutor me because in her class I bloomed and I blossomed because I'd finally found the English class I'd been longing for one where I wasn't fucking bored. (laughs) So you would think that then I would go and devour all of James Joyce. But while I liked the idea of him I even made a short film when I went to NYU film school called The Portrait of a Cecil, as, The Portrait of an Artist as a Young Cecil. <laughs> um, I loved that book so much, and I should have naturally jumped to where a person would jump to next, the day that we're celebrating today, Bloomsday. You would think that I would then go to Ulysses, right? <laughs> well, I could never go there because it was a based on a book that I fucking hated.
3: <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. The Odyssey. <laughs> you see, the reason why I hated English so much in high school was because through some stupid, strange twist of fate, I had been given the same English teacher four semesters in a row. And that English teacher was an expert on teaching one book.
3: <laughs> the
2: Odyssey. I read that book four fucking times in high school. Every semester. And for everyone else, it was a new book. But because of the way that, like, you know how classes work in high school and you can only get into that one English class? I always had Mr. Mariani. And while I loved Mr. Mariani, he was awesome. He always wore these, like, pastel sweaters. And he liked show tunes. You know what I mean. He was amazing. (laughs) But he liked The Odyssey. And I could not read that book one more time, which is why I marched into Mrs. Pollard's office and was like, it is my senior year, and I am not reading The Odyssey or The Iliad one more time at all. <laughs> so, how on earth could I read Ulysses, even though I was in love with James Joyce? There was no way. And then, you know, whatever. You know, it was high school. I didn't want to look at something that was inspired by the Odyssey. It was senior year, I had a crush on Peter Reese that I had to take care of, I had punk rock shows to go to, I had a leather jacket to wear, I had to dye my hair blonde, I had graduation on my mind. I could get to Ulysses later. Well, it's been 20 years since senior year. I don't even remember the Odyssey at all. It's like I've, I've got like a blank spot in my head. Like, I could not even tell you what happens in that book at all, even though I read it very thoroughly. Um, and, but I did flip through Portrait of an Artist the other day, and it still totally delighted me. And it made my heart race, and it made me remember what I loved and what I wanted, you know, in a writer, like what I loved in a writer, that thrill. So, I think we all know what needs to happen today on Bloomsday. I think I need to declare that I will let go of my animosity towards the Odyssey, and I will throw Homer some respect, and I will finally fall in love with James Joyce all over again. So, I will read you, Ulysses. So perhaps to encourage me, because I'm going to buy this version, uh, we'll pass it around. And you can all write a little note of encouragement in this copy for me. And if you love this book, like many people do today on Bloomsday, that uh, you can tell me why I will love this book and why I should not be afraid that it's based on Homer. <laughs> so thank you very much. That's what I have to say. Read. You should definitely read a portrait of an artist as a young man. And. Uh, Maybe because lots of other people like it, you should read Ulysses. But I'm going to say don't read the fucking Odyssey. (laughs) All right, that's it. so our next uh, our next uh, ranter or raver this evening is going to be the fabulous Amy Spaulding. Amy is pinch for us tonight. She is uh, an up-and-coming aspiring young adult writer, and she has her first piece that has just been published in the book, uh, an anthology called Click, uh, When We Knew We Were Gonna Be Feminists, which they don't have here tonight, but you can order it. just came out a few weeks ago. Um, and so please welcome to the podium, Amy Spaulding.
1: Cecil's the only person shorter than me, I think. I have props. Just a second. Thank you. As someone who's been writing on and off since childhood, I'm often asked who I list as my literary inspiration. I always feel like I'm supposed to have some sort of clever and genius but dripping with authenticity answer on hand. I should say Dorothy Parker, Flannery O'Connor, Essie Hinton, Harper Lee but I don't. Because when I'm very honest with myself, I know that the name on the tip of my tongue isn't any of these illustrious writers. It's actually Anne M. Martin, and the books that inspired me most weren't even the odd titles of her that picked up awards. Nope. It's The Babysitter's Club. In the series 15-Year Run, the girls of the eponymously titled Babysitter's Club did a lot crushed on boys, sometimes appropriately aged, sometimes dreamy teachers and other authority figures, got makeovers, went to summer camp, feuded with mean girls, and fought amongst themselves. They traveled to exotic locales like Orlando, New York, California, Vermont, London, and Paris. They hobnobbed with the stuff of dreams, millionaires, lifeguards, princesses, and child stars. They solved mysteries of phantom phone calls, a ghost cat, book arsonist, stolen jewels, abandoned children, and multiple,
0: multiple
1: kidnappings. (laughs) And in that time, they aged about a year and a half. (laughs) Ha ha ha! I was nine when my mom bought me my first few babysitter's club books and requested them, but even out in the wilds of Missouri, the buzz of their popularity had taken hold. And my mom was pretty good about trying to unite me with cool things. This was no meager task for a nerdy girl who'd skipped a grade in her tiny, heinous Catholic grade school. I was hooked immediately and within a couple of trips to the bookstore, got myself caught up with the sitters and began the monthly ritual that lasted nearly three years of waiting eagerly for the next volume to appear in stores and satisfy my fix. What was it about The Babysitter's Club that had me drinking its Kool-Aid from the get-go? Weirdly enough, it really wasn't the babysitting, even though it's it's in the title. It's generally the book's A-plot, but like the C-plot at worst. In fact, I somehow made it through adolescence without ever having babysat. This was in part because I found little kids to be terrifyingly small, generally sticky and or covered in crumbs, and louder and more annoying than I deemed acceptable. It's also because I thought if an adult ever saw me being nice to a smaller kid, they'd say, "Oh, and that is so cute. If there was anything I hated, it was any grown-up thinking I was cute. For some reason, I was determined that my shrimpy self, who was generally attired in my plaid school uniform, purchased only once a year, so it was generally either too tight or too small. Too tight or too large. Um, Who was generally afraid of heights and birds and fish and tornadoes. Who generally cried on basically a daily basis. um, Be viewed as some kind of badass. Perhaps I was wise enough to realize the only chance I had of not seeming completely adorable was avoiding babies and toddlers. But more likely my delusions of grandeur and badassery that I still occasionally suffer from today began quite early on. And weirdly enough, unlike Sweet Valley High with its perfect blonde twins and its weekly school dances and the kind of drama worthy of the hills, I didn't think the Babysitter's Club detailed what my upcoming late tween, early-teen years held in store for me. I got that it was fantasy in the guise of reality. After all, Stony Brook, Connecticut was world where your new stepdad is obviously a millionaire. You'll have oodles of space to yourself in his palatial mansion once your mom marries him. If one of your friends gets the chance to go on a killer vacation, don't worry. Someone's parents, who cares if they're yours, will pony up to make sure no one in your group gets left out. 12-year-olds most definitely possess the maturity and capability to single-handedly care for children, even those with special needs, often with more wisdom and understanding than parents. Don't worry. Well, obviously, newborn babies a bit much for a 12-year-old to handle. Two 12 year olds basically equals a 24 year old so we're good (laughs) I knew people didn't exclaim dibbly fresh instead of cool I knew in a couple years my friends wouldn't start making semi-witty references to I Love Lucy and Mary Poppins and Little Orphan Annie as if they were awesome or relevant. I was aware no one would stop giving the finger in favor of using the bizzer sign, and I was fairly positive no adult in their right mind would entrust me with kind of responsibility and duty granted upon our fair heroines on a monthly basis. But those heroines, at least 15 years before women started summing up their identities by declaring themselves a Carrie, a Samantha, a Charlotte, or a Miranda, a different foursome had their grip on much of the female population, and girls knew emphatically if they were a A Claudia, a Marianne, or a (laughs) Stacy. I wanted desperately to be a Stacy. I'll show you guys. Oh my god, she's so cool. (laughs) Stacy was everything I wasn't. From New York City, popular, confident with boys, super stylish, possessing thick, blonde, wavy hair. She even had a glamorous disease diabetes. I mean, the daily injections and the no sugar thing sounded pretty bad, but it gave her an allure of mystery and intrigue. I was flat hair, awkwardly clothed, boy phobic, and without a whiff of mystery or intrigue. <laughs> Stacy McGill, if I'd been gifted with your assets, life would have gone so differently. <laughs> and it would have been pretty good to have been a Claudia. Sure, she had a learning disability and a terrible sister, but her grandmother Mimi was so much cooler than mine. And being labeled gifted in a really crappy school was sort of like having a learning disability anyway. <laughs> Lottie was artistic and that magic word, popular. And okay, I knew someone would get beat up if they ever actually showed up to one of to school in one of her outfits. Here's a sample outfit. This is from number 17, Marianne's Bad Luck Mystery. I think a kidnapping happened in this one. <laughs> nobody but nobody dresses like Claudia. The best way to get this point across is to describe to you what Claudia was wearing at lunch that day. It was her vegetable blouse. An oversized white shirt with a green vegetable print all over it. Cabbages and squashes and turnips and stuff. Under the blouse was a very short jean skirt. White stockings, green anklets over the stockings, and lavender sneakers. The kind boys usually wear with a lot of rubber and big laces and the name of manufacturer in huge letters on the side. Why doesn't she just say Converse? It's really weird. Wait, I'm not done. Claudia had pulled the hair on one side of her head back with a yellow clip that looked like a poodle. (laughs) The hair on the other side of her head was hanging in her face. Attached to the one ear you could see was a plastic earring about the size of a jar lid. (laughs) But Claude had the audacity and the sheer awesomeness to pull it off. In truth, I was the most like sweet, shy Mary Ann, who at series start is kept in babyish clothes by her creepo McGee dad, much like I was stuck in the blue and green plaid jumper I hated with a fervent passion. Like Mary Ann, some of my biggest dreams involved being treated more like a grown-up and owning a kitten. But even Marianne's life was so much better than mine. She was in love with movie star Cam Geary, and what showed up at school with the hunky and vaguely Southern, if Louisville counts, Logan Bruno, who looked like a mini version and totally liked Marianne. I have proof. (laughs) It's the book's title. Logan likes Marianne. Back when I was crushing on such hunks as Kirk Cameron and Corey Haim, didn't seem likely a younger doppelganger if one of them would end up in a desk next to mine and then fall in love with me. But living vicariously through Marianne was pretty good. She got the boys, she got a makeover, and she got a kitten. <laughs> I knew I didn't want to be anything like Christy Thomas, the club's president, and a big talking loudmouth who was always convinced she was right. Christy had big ideas, but God, she was infuriating. Wait, wait. Of course, there was no way to know back then that I would grow up to be bossy McPants with a voice always slightly louder than situation appropriate. In retrospect, Christy Thomas, I understand, and I'm sorry for that stuff I thought. (laughs) I eventually started growing up more, and it became a chore to pick up the latest Babysitter's Club book each month. So one month I just didn't. I suddenly felt, despite their amazing adventures and incredible loads of responsibility, more mature than the girls in the Babysitter's Club. So I said goodbye. When the final tome of the Babysitter's Club was released 10 years ago, there were nearly 150 books in the original series. I don't have them all. <laughs> Plus innumerable super specials. Mysteries, <laughs> super mysteries, spin offs, and a rather short lived culminating series where the girls still identified as the Babysitter's Club apparently stop babysitting <laughs> and graduate. <laughs> Me, I don't want to live in a world where the girls aged out of Stony Brook Middle School. Nearly 25 years after reading Christie's Big Idea, the detail of the series remain with me. How could I forget Claudia's hollowed out book to store junk food in? Christie's dog Louie, who sadly passed away after Christie moved to her new neighborhood. Stacy's posh New York BFF, Lane Cummings. Marianne's famous city skirts, purchased for her 13th birthday. God, how I wanted that skirt. It sounded amazing. It still does. Not long ago, I reread some of these books, waiting to feel embarrassment over, let's face it, despite having put them aside, a lifelong devotion. But the thing is, I still love them. Anna Martin, back when she was still writing the series and before a parcel of ghostwriters took over, really gets the minutiae of adolescence. What you're allowed to do and what your parents still deem too grown up or unacceptable at any age. Which lunch table your friends sit at and which ones they sat out the year before and what that means and why it matters. How sometimes it absolutely is of high priority to detail at length what each of your friends wore to school that day. <laughs> but Martin gets the bigger stuff too. The weird feeling as you and your friends start to grow up, but in different ways and on completely different schedules. The past you share, but the futures that branch away from one another. The way these things twist to come back together again. How often in life, no matter if you're 13 or 30, there's no one who understands you the way your best friends do. The terror of life changing, of your family changing, of friends changing, of boys changing, as you simultaneously wish and hope for nothing more but for life to speed up and change already, gosh darn it. And when I finally started writing the kind of stuff I really loved and cared about and would have wanted to read myself, despite that my characters were older and less dibly fresh and wanting a far fewer responsibilities and way less likely to wear poodle hair clips, I noticed how I was drawn to the small moments between friends, the dynamics at play and family relationships, the way sometimes the world is no bigger than the dream you hold so firmly and consistently in your heart and those things became important to me to expect out of the books I loved because of four girls in Stony Brook Connecticut and because of the author who created them so every time I write I like to think I'm even if only subconsciously calling a meeting of the Babysitter's Club to order
2: We are high class here, huh, James Joyce, Babysitter's Club? It's just going to get better. Um, Our next author, who is going to rant and rave, um, or rave, I don't know, we'll see, uh, uh, is Justine Musk. Justine Musk is the author of The Uninvited, Blood Angel, and Lord of Bones, and she's a fabulous horror writer, and she's also got a great, great blog. So please welcome Justine Musk.
4: I'm actually, (laughs) I'm taller than my predecessors, (laughs) so. (laughs) I'm actually here to talk about the Sweet Valley High series, so. Total coincidence. So um, for those of you who uh, might not recall quite as fondly as I do, uh, Sweet Valley High ran for about 156 books, I think, over maybe about 10 years. Had spin-offs and television series and things like that. Um, Diablo Cody is uh, writing the uh, film version, which I just found out today. And uh, it's been uh, re-released. The series was re-released in, I think, 2008. So it's influencing a whole new generation of young women. So. I remember the Sweet Valley High series. Shakespeare, they were maybe not. They were more like our fifth grade version of crack. We gobbled them up, got high off them, passed them around, eagerly awaited each month's installment. The series started with Double Love, which came out in 1983. This was also the year of Return of the Jedi. So the same year that gave us Elizabeth and Jessica Wakefield also gave us the Ewoks. There's a lesson in that, although I'm damned if I know what it is. Elizabeth and Jessica Wakefield are better than you. They just are. (laughs) They are golden Californian perfection, which looks like this. Blonde hair, blue-green eyes, five-foot-six, wearing a golden lavalier necklace and driving a red spider Fayette. They're also a perfect size six. As a ten-year-old, this was a valuable lesson to me. Perfection comes in size six, which... (laughs) Of course, it's too fat today. In, in the recent re-release of the books, the twins are now a perfect size four. <laughs> and they don't drive a Fiat. They drive a red Jeep Wrangler because the books are progressive like that. <laughs> their mother, Alice, is blonde and youthful and often mistaken for their older sister, just like your mom. <laughs> She's an interior decorator so she has a career, but it's not like it's a hard-driving career where she might come off as all power-hungry and shit, it's about making things pretty and nice. Their dad, Ned, heads up a law firm because lawyers are good dads and good people. The parents have the decency to be absent for much of the time so the twins can compete over basketball players, get kidnapped, get sexually assaulted, date bad boys who drive motorcycles, fall into comas. Date princes with psychotic mothers who lock them in castle dungeons. (laughs) Traumatize fat girls. Date rich boys who drive sports cars, switch identities, and the like. The twins have a brother named Steven. At one point, Steven dates a black girl. And this is very daring and audacious of him before he decides that the differences between them are just too, well, different. And it would never work out. So when you're 10 and then 11, when you're on the trembling edge of adolescence, you look for clues and cues to tell you how to be what's desired and acceptable. So the Wakefield twins present you with your options. You can be a good girl or a bad girl. If you're a good girl, then you are like Elizabeth. You're serious and responsible and hardworking and sweet and loyal and just not particularly interesting. She's the smart girl, the scholar, so she does super smart things like write gossip column for the school paper. In the new series, though, she writes an anonymous gossip blog and edits the school website because the books are progressive like that, <laughs> so. <laughs> On the cover of Double Love, the first book in the series, she has her hair primly pulled back, is looking at you with mild disapproval, and wears a sexless yellow sweater, neck. Her morally superior nature is further demonstrated by the fact that her best friend has the name Enid, which is about as sexy as that stupid yellow sweater. So, In Double Love, though, her good girl nature is rewarded because she's the one who gets the guy. The guy's name is Todd, and he plays basketball. These are his two distinguishing features. <laughs> somewhere in some alternative universe the book ends with Elizabeth releasing her inhibitions and straddling Todd the basketball player with a riding crop while Todd snorts cocaine off her left breast but in this universe they just go to the prom or something So they don't even need any teenage vampires because these books happen before teenage vampires so. <laughs> Jessica is the bad girl we know this because on the cover of Double Love, she has must-up hair, wears an edgy denim jacket, denim, and stares out at the viewer with a come-hither gaze and a ready-for-anything smirk. <laughs> Except Jessica isn't really a bad girl because she doesn't do drugs and she doesn't have sex and she's not working class like this other girl, Trisha, in the book that she fears her brother Stephen might be dating. This is before he dates the black girl. Except Stephen is actually dating Trisha's angelic sister, so phew, everything ends happily there. Until the angelic sister dies several books later of leukemia or something, but whatever. So, All Jessica does is lie constantly, exploit her sister's good nature, cheat, use people for her own ends, torture fat girls, accuse Todd, the basketball player, of sexually assaulting her because she's pissed off that Todd would rather date Elizabeth than her, and stuff like that. Because Jessica, you see, is a straight-up sociopath. But this is okay because she doesn't actually have sex, which means she's not a slut like Trisha. Besides, she's also massively popular. And like everybody knows that popularity is good for your soul. And she's white and upper class and a perfect size six, except now it's a size four. But whatever, she's thin and that's the important thing. So we can forgive her in the end and give a wink and a smile and say, oh, Jessica, that's just her silly sociopathic nature. And they live in the world of Sweet Valley, where the sun always shines, where the rich kids are total snobs except for the nice rich girl who dies of a cocaine overdose because drugs are bad. (laughs) Where girls compete for boys the way girls are biologically programmed to do, at least according to The Bachelor and those other very fine reality shows. Where the boys can't help but attempt to date rape their attractive classmates, but the girls never press charges or anything, and it's forgotten soon after because these things happen. And where everybody is white and thin and heterosexual, except of course when they're not and they freak people out. (laughs) So... Being fat is kind of okay because you can lose the weight and transform yourself from social pariah to homecoming queen, like this one character Robin does. Being gay or of color is a little more problematic. At one point, one character snipes to another, I can't believe she's dating him. He's so ethnic and working class. So... If you're gay or of color, you should probably live somewhere else. These characters are happily devoid of intellectual concerns, never pondering whether or not there is a god or what they should do with their futures or even if they'll have a future before global warming turns the world to soup. They go shopping, they go to parties, they go on dates. This confused me a bit when I was young because I went into high school also expecting to go on dates, but dates were being phased out. Instead, you were described as like going with someone. Which means you were boyfriend-girlfriend, which means you could make out and nobody would call you a slut. But now, of course, there's this whole thing about hookup cultures and giving boys blowjobs, because blowjobs don't count as real sex. But hookup culture doesn't exist in Sweet Valley, where a blowjob is kind of like a unicorn, this mysterious, mythical thing that nobody really believes in. (laughs) So... Also, when I was a kid, I wanted my parents to buy me a gold lavalier necklace like the Wakefield twins had, and I wanted to drive a Fiat, even though I didn't know what it was. (laughs) And I wanted to be a size 6, even though I wasn't sure what that was either. But what I learned from the series was that you could be a good girl like Elizabeth, or a bad girl like Jessica. Bad girls have all the fun, but they're sociopaths. And also, but they do not get rewarded with the really nice boyfriends like Todd the basketball player. Also, bad girls aren't so bad that they actually have sex. You can dress sexy and act sexy, but it's kind of like a game of pretend or a performance. Like when your younger brother dressed up as a squirrel in his third grade play. So, you know, he's not really a squirrel, he's just teasing. (laughs) Jessica seemed like the powerful one because she was sexy. It would take me years to learn that although it's fun to have the sexy, it's not like the sexy translates to real power. It doesn't change social policy or get you into the corporate boardroom unless you're sneaking in there to have sex with the CEO on the conference table. Not that I ever did this, but you get my point. (laughs) If sexy was powerful, then Dick Cheney would be popping diet pills and wearing fishnets, but he is not. Elizabeth doesn't seem very powerful at all because she's a nice girl, and nice girls don't care about power. They're too busy shopping for yellow sweaters and finding friends named Enid. Elizabeth isn't sexy because although sexiness is kind of good, sexiness is also bad. It gets you into trouble with those boys who want to date rape you in their cars after they take you to the dairy burger. (laughs) Is it possible for a girl to be nice and sexy? Is it possible for a girl to be good with some bad moments or bad with some good moments? The universe the universe would probably implode if this happened. You can be sexy and dumb and glamorous or asexual and smart and completely boring. You can even be a sociopath. What you can't be, however, is complex. Thank you Sweet Valley for teaching me what it means to be female. For teaching me about rich boys, and basketball players, and sororities, and lip gloss, For teaching me that girls, even twin sisters, should compete for guys because guys are such a limited natural resource. Almost as rare as those unicorns I mentioned earlier. And that there is no problem on this planet that cannot be solved in the end by your own massive popularity. And that perfect beauty requires an equally perfect tan, or at least a really good tanner. That it's okay to be sociopathic, but not okay to have sex. Oh, and that nice girls shouldn't take drugs because they will totally kill you dead. (laughs) So... I'm really glad, Sweet Valley, that you're moving on to teach these lessons to the new generation of young girls who will look to you as eagerly as I did for such cues and clues and messages. Because it's not like they're reinforced by the larger culture or anything, and it's not like these messages get beamed at them over and over from the television and the movie screens and the advertising they see all around them. I mean, maybe that was the case when I was ten, but things are really, really different now. (laughs) Girls know they are prized for who they are inside, that they matter, that boys should treat them with respect and not as random booze that competing in the hotness Olympics is ultimately a trap that sets you up to be dismissed or discarded. They know that they can go on to have full dynamic careers because of things like excellent maternity leave programs and universal daycare and husbands who will happily do half of the housework. They know that they can even run for president without getting flack for their hairdos because it's not like any of us are judged on our appearance anymore. Except in you, sweet valley, so may you live forever. Thank you. (laughs)
2: I somehow missed the entire Babysitters Club, Sweet Valley High uh, thing in my life, and and I feel a lack. I, I feel a big lack in my education. Thank you for sharing that with me, both of you. Uh, author is Amy Goldman-Coss. Amy Goldman-Coss is a YA writer, as she's written a ton of books. Uh, most recently, she's got a new book. It's called The Not-So-Great Depression, which just came out. Uh, she's also written The Girls, uh, Poison Ivy, Side Effects, and numerous, numerous, numerous other books. She's a fantastic lady and a local. Here we go. Amy Goldman-Coss.
0: Hello, boys and girls. I didn't prepare something so carefully and brilliant, so you'll have to bear with me. But the book I am talking about is The Little Prince. All right, let's see a show of hands. Who's read it? Uh, who ha- oh, yes, I don't even know how to say that. Well, but I was thinking maybe I would deliver this in my French accent, <laughs> and it would be so beautiful. <laughs> The Little Prince came into my life. This very copy, you'll notice that its pages are not as deeply related as they once were. (laughs) But there were two teenagers that lived up the street from me in Detroit, Michigan. Near Seven Mile and Myers. Detroiters? No? Detroiters? There we go. (laughs) And they gave me a whole package of dolls and books as hand-me-downs. And... So just the fact that they had been touched by teenage hands had a lot to do with how I opened that box of books, too. And the little, until then, I don't even remember what I read. I assume I read. But The Little Prince was the first book that didn't end happily, that suggested that things don't necessarily work out, that, um, love was dicey, it wasn't like you fall in love with that. End of story. Because, as you recall, the prince was in love with Rose. Who didn't read this? How many people are here? OK, the Sweet Valley High types. <laughs> Let's see. Did the Sweet Valley High types not read The Little Prince? <laughs> OK, well, those of us who read The Little Prince, let me start with the introduction I'm going to read it to you. OK, does anybody remember who it's dedicated to? To the dedication. This was, I believe it came out in 40. It came out in 1943. To Leon Worth. I ask the indulgence of the children who may read this book for dedicating it to a grown-up. I have a serious reason. He is the best friend I have in the world. I have another reason. This grown-up understands everything, even books about children. I have a third reason. He lives in France where he is hungry and cold. He needs cheering up. If all these reasons are not enough, I will dedicate the book to the child from whom this grown-up grew. All grown-ups were once children, although few of them remember it. And so I correct my dedication to Leon Worth when he was a little boy. So you read that as a kid, if you're me, in Detroit, and it blows your mind. Because there were children's books at that time that were just so sweet and so nice, and the good girls were good, and anybody who was bad got corrected, and it was okay then for them, too. And you could identify the good guys and the bad guys easy peasy, and you could tell that if you loved, you won. And everything was going to be fine from there. The Little Prince is about a little prince who lives alone on a planet, with a rose, that he's in love with. And it's a very difficult relationship. (laughs) And this was the first time, at least for me, that I knew you could admit, as an adult, that there was such a thing as a difficult relationship, not unlike Aunt Eva and Uncle Irving. (laughs) Who we said, oh, but even though he said, shut up, Rosie, you know nothing, he loved her inside, and inside was the heart of gold. This was the first time I caught whiff, and I don't know what age I was, unfortunately, but it was before I moved, so I was at least younger than sixth grade when I read this. And it doesn't... The, the little prince spends his time, he travels from planet to planet, as you recall. Those of you who remember the little prince, which planets do you remember? Speak to me.
4: Oh, the one with
2: the, accountants?
0: the yeah. accountant. And what was the accountant about? I don't remember. Oh, well he knew how many stars there were. <laughs> as you got to each planet, as the little prince got to each planet, there would be one person on it. And the accountant added up the stars, and he owned them, and he knew all about them, and he, knew, and, well, have you over? Well, maybe that was the explorer. The lighter. Hmm. There was the lamplighter, his planet was very small. The map maker who didn't go and explore because he was busy making the map. You send explorers. All of them were very damaged, peculiar people on each planet. <laughs> <laughs> and on rereading it as an adult, the only one that was cheesy was the tippler. He sort of used a cheap joke. You know, I drink to forget. What do you want to forget that I'm drinking? OK. But the others were just deep as all fuck. And there was (laughs) and my favorite, which I will read to you, if you're good boys and girls. It's a little bit long, so everybody comfortable? Ready? Wanna get more wine? (laughs) Oh, I hope I have the right page. (sighs) So anyway let me just tell you one thing first this story is told by a fellow with no name who um, is flying his plane and it crashes in the Sahara Desert and because and he was flying alone and he needs to repair it by himself and it's a very hard task and he has enough water for a week and as he's working on it a little prince comes walking up and says please sir draw me a sheep I'm busy with matters of consequence. And so the story unfolds. And it's our narrator tells us about working on his plane, and this pesky prince, who he learns to love, who just drops hints about his planets and and his rose, and his relationship with his rose, and, um, but will never answer a question directly. And he's trying to figure out what adults are. Anyway, let me find this good, you'll hum while I find this right one. La la la. Are we humming? I had a place marker in it, but then I dropped the book. Not the businessman. The businessman's adding up the numbers. La la la. Keep going. The fifth planet was very strange. It was the smallest of them all. That's the lamplighter. His planet was so. We may cease humming at this time. <laughs> the planet for the lamplighter is so small. That he's always lighting and unlighting his lamp. The little prince says, Hey, I could really dig this because my favorite thing on my tiny planet was watching the sunset, and you could have like so many sunsets here. But he had to go on anyway. I inhabiting Hum, the gentleman who wrote the Voluminous Books. There's your book, Sky. Ah, oh, shit. No, the seventh planet was the Earth. We've gone too far. They're unbelievable. I will. But first I have to find the right planet because it's very important, unless I just will have to tell you. The planet? the planet where there's the king and he says and about his rat. Do you remember about his rat? And there's a very proud man. Okay. Here we go. Here's the king. He found himself in the neighborhood of the asteroids 325, 326, 327, 328, and 329, and 330. He began, therefore, by visiting them in order and to add to his knowledge. The first of them was inhabited by a king. Clad in royal, purple, and ermine, he was seated upon a throne, which was at the same time both simple and majestic. Ah, there is a subject! exclaimed the king when he saw the little prince coming, and the little prince asked himself, how could he recognize me when he'd never seen me before? He did not know how the world is simplified for kings. To them, all men are subjects. (laughs) Approach so that I may see you better, said the king who felt proud of being at least at last a king over someone. The little prince looked everywhere to find a place to sit down, but the entire planet was crammed and obstructed by the king's magnificent ermine robe. So he remained standing upright, and since he was tired, he yawned. It is contrary to etiquette to yawn in the presence of a king, the monarch said to him. I forbid you to do so. I can't help it. I can't stop myself, replied the little prince, thoroughly embarrassed. I have come on a long journey, and I've had no sleep. Ah, then, the king said, I order you to yawn it is years since I have seen anyone yawning yawns to me are objects of curiosity (laughs) come now yawn again it is an order (laughs) that frightens me I cannot anymore murmured the little prince now completely abashed hmm hmm replied the king then I order you to sometimes yawn And sometimes, too, he sputtered a little and seemed vexed, for what the king fundamentally insisted upon was that his authority be respected. He tolerated no disobedience. He was an absolute monarch, but because he was a very good man, he made his orders reasonable. If I ordered a general, he would say by way of explanation, if I ordered a general to change himself into a seabird and if the general did not obey me, that would not be the fault of the general, it would be my fault. May I sit down, came now a timid inquiry from the little prince. I order you to do so, the king answered him and majestically gathered in a fold of his ermine robe. I order you to ask me a question. Sire, he said to him, I beg that you will excuse my asking you a question. I order you to ask me a question, the king hastened to assure him. Sire, over what do you rule? Over everything, said the king with magnificent simplicity. Over everything? The king made a gesture which took in his planet, the other planets, and all the stars. Over all that, asked the prince. Over all that, the king answered. For his rule was not only absolute, it was also universal. And the stars obey you? Certainly they do, the king said. They obey instantly, I do not permit insubordination. Such power was a thing for the little prince to marvel at. If he had been master of such complete authority, he would have been able to watch the sunset not 44 times in one day, but 72, or even hundreds, or even 200 times without ever having to move his chair. And because he felt a bit sad as he remembered his little planet, which he had forsaken, he plucked up his courage and asked the king a favor. I should like to see a sunset. Do me that kindness. Order the sun to set. If I ordered a general to fly from one flower to another like a butterfly, or to write a tragic drama, or to change himself into a seabird, and if the general did not carry out that order that he had received, which one of us would be in the wrong, the king demanded, the general or myself? You, said the little prince firmly. Exactly. One must require from each one the duty which each one can perform, the king went on. Accepted authority rests first. Of all unreason, if you ordered your people to go and throw themselves into the sea, they would rise up in revolution. I have the right to require obedience because my orders are reasonable. Then my sunset, the little prince reminded him, for he never forgot a question once he'd asked it. You shall have your sunset, I shall command it, but according to my science of government, I shall wait until conditions are favorable. (laughs) When will that be? inquired the little prince. <clears> hmm, <throat> replied the king, and before saying anything else he consulted a bulky almanac. <clears> hmm, <throat> that will be about about that will be about the evening, about twenty minutes to eight, and you will see how well I am obeyed. <laughs> the little prince yawned. He was regretting his lost sunset, and then too, he was already beginning to be a little bored. I have nothing more to do here, he said to the king, so I shall set out on my way again. Do not go, said the king. You are you, who was very proud of having a subject, do not go. I will make you a minister. Minister of what? Minister of, of justice. But there is nobody here to judge. We do not know that, the king said. I have not yet made a complete tour of my kingdom. I am very old. There is no room here for a carriage, and it tires me to walk. Oh, but I've looked already, said the little prince, turning around. Give one more glance on the other side of the planet. On that side, as on this, there was nobody at all. Then you shall judge yourself, the king answered. That is the most difficult thing of all. It is much more difficult to judge oneself than to judge others. If you succeed in judging yourself rightly, then you are indeed a man of true wisdom. Yes, said the little prince, but I can judge myself anywhere. I do not need to live on this planet. Hmm, hmm said the king. I have good reason to believe that somewhere on my planet there is a rat. I hear him at night. You can judge this old rat. From time to time you will condemn him to death. <laughs> Thus his life will depend on your justice, but you will pardon him on each occasion, for he must be treated thriftily. He is the only one we have." That expression, he's our only rat, became is a family term in our family, about just about everything when you say, well, we have to make this last. He's our only rat. <laughs> Anyway, that's The Little Prince. I love it. I recommend it. The love story between the prince and the rose is tragic. He's suffering with ambivalence. He loved her. He left her. He doesn't know if he should have. As he's away from her, he knows more and more about the relationship, but he never really it never really resolves, and we really don't know how it ends between them. That's all.
2: Thank you, Amy. <sighs> All right. Last but not least, we have the wonderful Mark Haskell Smith. Mark Haskell Smith wrote this book, Moist, and he has a new book, which is called Baked, that comes out in August, right? And, uh, and it just got a great review in Kirkus, right? Yep. So please welcome
3: Mark Haskell Smith. Thanks. Uh, You know, it's funny when when Cecil asked me if I wanted to do this, I thought, yeah, okay, but it's like an interesting challenge, right? You have to think, I I knew I didn't want to rant because I know how hard it is to write a book, so I'm not going to shit on anyone's book. (laughs) I just can't do it. It's why I don't write reviews. So then I was thinking, okay, do I want to, there's lots of books I could rave about, but do you really want to hear me rave about... David Mitchell's new book, you guys can all read it next week. Or do you want to hear me rave about some great crime fiction, like, you know, I don't know, Gary Anthony Haywood's new book? Um, and I thought, I'm going to pick books that I really like that are obscure, that may be books that you should have heard of, but you didn't. And I narrowed it down to two books. One was Lisa Moore's Alligator. And then I felt this is the same publisher as me, and it would be kind of shilling. <laughs> um, but it's a great book. And uh, then I thought I would pick Polar by T.R. Pearson, which uh, sadly is now, it's only available in print on demand from Penguin, which is why there are no copies here. It was a New York Times notable book in the year 2002, and it is, I think, the kind of direct descendant of great American comic novels like uh, Confederacy of Dunces. Um, it's a really great book um, and it's also, not only is it funny and it's Southern because T.R. Pearson is a, a guy who lives in Winston-Salem, Salem, North Carolina, it's also really strange. Um, it's narrated by a character who lives in a sleepy backwater town in the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's a valley but it ain't sweet, um, <laughs> and the person narrating it is—you uh, don't never know his name or her name. You never know who they are, uh, but they seem to know everything about everyone in this little town, all their feuds and uh, picadillos and stuff. <laughs> um, and the thing that's sort of interesting about it, on a on a writer level, right, is that. The plot, it follows a deputy named Ray Tatum and he's investigating the disappearance of this young girl. And there are no clues at all except for this strange ramblings of an old hillbilly named Clayton. And Clayton is uh, special in a special town. And uh, he spent, Clayton has spent years uh, sitting on his bark bark lounger watching the Satin Channel. Which is a triple X porn channel. In fact, he's got a gigantic dish that he had bought. He got the deluxe one with the American Eagle painted on it, and it's in front of his house, and uh, he likes to share his opinions of the plots of the movies with with everyone in town, and I will just read you a tiny, tiny bit about Clayton. uh, Just so you get a taste. Uh, those Satin Channel movies never seemed to work on Clayton in quite the same way they were meant to, meant to, as he was prone to get caught up in their stories, no matter how threadbare and tossed off. In the hardware once, a pack of us heard him describe a film about a pool boy who'd been seduced and bedded a housewife while her husband was out jogging. Clayton had elected to fix upon the peril of the undertaking, as he'd owned up to quaking anxiety once the husband had come home, as Clayton was obliged by genetic inclination, to anticipate bloodletting. Of course, that husband merely kicked off his sneakers and had a go at his wife himself, since she had a hand-free and a pertinent pertinent cavity entirely unemployed, (laughs) which which Clayton chose to take for an altogether splendid turn of events. (laughs) Both a triumph of love and a regular marvel of plotting have made that boy a gelding Clayton told us saying it sadly as if conceding that he was not so evolved as some people. Swole up that thing of his was like this Clayton's thumb and fingertip fell just shy of meeting around his wrist it's a regular wonder he could fit into his trunks (laughs) maybe that's enough of that Um, so uh, what happens is uh, is that then things get weird. Um, <laughs> um, a little girl goes missing, who was in a, in the, in a wilderness area, a local girl, and there n- are no clues leading to her disappearance. And all, all that we know, all that the de- the detective knows is that Clayton has stopped watching porn and asks everyone to call him Titus. <laughs> and the, they think that there's a theory in the town that when he was, they got the new scanners down at the Piggly Wiggly and, and the laser went into his eye and did something to his brain. <laughs> but no one is sure. So they got, but he also starts speaking in strange voices. So the, the deputy goes to Clayton's house and, uh, and finds that he is now drawing with charcoal, like charcoal brick, a map of, an uh, incredibly well detailed map of Antarctica. And he is speaking transmissions from McMurdo Base for some lost Antarctic ex- expedition. But mixed in with that is information about the missing girl. And, uh, and he also, Clayton has developed this amazing ability to predict the future in random and pointless ways. <laughs> um, which affects all the people in the town. So they start thinking he's some sort of a prophet or seer or something and they all rush to his house and you know try to give him massages or meatloaf and get him to tell the the, tell the future but um, what's exceptional about the book is um, is that the plot the story of trying to find the missing girl is background it's not like a normal plot in a book at all it's it's inessential actually to the whole experience of reading the book what comes forward are the details of the people's lives um, the, the different characters, the flavor of the town, the poor boy whose girlfriend cheated on him but because he was the guy who pumped out your septic tanks, he filled up her her new boyfriend's car with sludge. Um, things like that. I mean, the book is filled with all these like strange asides about the people, the lives, and everything. And it's, uh, it's quite remarkable. And I was always thinking, as I thought about this, I was like, if this book was written by someone under 40 who lived in Brooklyn, it would, be, it would be hailed as a remarkable achievement in experimental fiction. We'd all be going, oh my god, have you read T.R. Pearson's Polar? It's amazing. But I think that the, uh, I think the author himself sums it up best, and I, that's what I'll just finish with is, when he asked, was asked about the book, he said, I have no idea what to say about the book. Can't explain it, can't account for it.
2: Thank you. Oh, man, thank you so much. Thank you so much to everyone for coming out. Thank you, Amy Spaulding, Amy Goldman-Cost, Justine Musk, and Mark Haskell-Smith. Everybody's uh, books are here for sale, um, and uh, a lot of the books um, that uh, people will. I guess not polar and the Sweet Valley High, but uh, but The Little Prince is here and a Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man is here, and you can order uh, polar uh, print on demand through Penguin online and. Um, and you can order Sweet Valley High, the progressive new version, and, uh, and The Babysitter's Club, which is updated as well. And I think also a graphic novel, isn't it? Four graphic, Four graphic novels. novels. So thank you so much for coming out to the lit thing. Uh, we're going to take a hiatus for summer, um, but we'll be back in the fall. Um, thank you very, very much for coming out.
3: Whoa. Thanks for coming,
1: everybody. I think I have another bottle of wine that I'll open and bring down if you want to hang out for some time and just chill and buy books or whatever you want to... Okay, thanks.
3: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashley and Arlo. Oh, my. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, or at the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.